And those who have uh, raised children will have had the experience of the recurring questions. Why? Why? How? You know, what? And um, I suppose all of us at uh, an earlier stage in life would probably that nagging questioner ourselves. How? Why no? Not satisfied with it just because, or I say so, we keep saying, why? Why? Later in life, we are less demonstrative, perhaps, than the average three or four-year-old. But we still have questions, don't we? We still struggle with things. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York. And it's sometimes big events like that. How could it happen? Well, we know how it happens in terms of uh, a terrorist attack, but how can people be like that? Or how or why does God allow that kind of thing to happen? Sometimes it's the smaller instances. Sometimes it's folks that we know for whom life has been recently just a series of kicks in the teeth. And you say, how, wh why are these, why is anyone expected to cope with that, put up with that? Sometimes it's things that have happened to ourselves. God, stop this. God, take that away. God, don't let such and such happen. And then if that prayer is seemingly not answered, we wonder, doesn't God care? Is God not able to do anything about it? And yet the story of the Scriptures is of a God who does care and a God who does have the power to do something about it. Um, Jesus, when he, after the episode on the Mount of Transfiguration, after he came down the mountain, there was a man who had brought his son to the disciples for healing. The boy was fitting, and the disciples hadn't been able to heal the boy. And, and the man speaks to Jesus and says, Help us if you can. And Jesus picked up on him saying, If you can. You see, the man didn't seem to doubt that Jesus would want to help. He didn't seem to doubt that Jesus would try. He wasn't sure that Jesus would be able to pull this off after all the disciples had just failed. So, if you can. By contrast, a bit earlier in the episode in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus heals a leper. And, and when Jesus is speaking to the leper before the, the healing, the leper says to Jesus... If you want to, you can make me clean. You see, it's the opposite thing now. The, the man who's brought his son didn't doubt that Jesus would want to. He wasn't sure, sure that Jesus could. The leper doesn't seem to have any doubts that Jesus could. If you want to, you can make me clean. He wasn't sure that Jesus would want to. He was a despised leper. He'd been ignored and mistreated all his life. He suddenly wasn't sure. And, and yet, on both occasions, Jesus does heal. And, it, and in these and in other ways, he's, he's bringing to us a message about a God who does have compassion and who does have power. A God who is both willing and able. And then we look around us and think, but why? Why is there still an answered prayer if, if the Lord is both willing and able? So that's a series that we are going to look at, and as we look at this series, we're following the outline in, in this book by Pete Gregg called God on Mute, and there's some copies available for sale on the, on the bookstall. 
It's born out of sort of experience. He readily admits his experience is not the, the toughest, but it's, it is nevertheless very serious of his wife being unwell, perhaps not going to come through an operation, and, and their prayers not being answered. And from that, he begins to explore this whole question of, because he believed in God and God's healing and everything, why does stuff like this happen? And he gives three good reasons, I think, for looking at the subject of unanswered prayer. There's the emotional reasons. We still hurt. Why is this happening? Why am I still going through this? How much do these people have to put up with? It's, it's not right. It's not fair. We feel that in our guts. But as well as the emotional reasons, he says, secondly, there's the intellectual reasons, the reasons in our mind. How can we believe in a God who is willing and able and yet have this kind of stuff going on? And then thirdly, there's the cultural reasons. We live in a world, we live in a culture where people like decency and tidiness and comfort. We cope more easily when things are in order and struggle when things don't work out. We struggle when things we pinned our hopes on let us down. And we suppose sometimes it's a failure on our part to say that God has let us down. We were having dinner on Thursday night with, with a friend, and the conversation turned to an occasion when a minister um, told us in a congregation in very sore circumstances that we shouldn't be angry with God. And we were saying that Karen and I at that point both thought, why not? Why not? Surely God can take our anger and frustration? Are there not instances in the Psalms when the psalmist is shaking his fist at God? And we need to be able to talk about our heart and our anger because the three reasons that Pete Gregg gave, we are emotional ones, we still hurt. It raises questions about belief. But also we need to get beyond just tidiness and decency and, keep, and actually be open and honest. For without openness and honesty, without the struggle to come to terms with what is going on, faith remains shallow and superficial. And faith is not really part of the life that we have to live in the hurting world. Habakkuk is another example of this. He is different from many of the prophets in the Old Testament in that he's not saying this is going to happen or this is, this is what the message is. It's a conversation through the three chapters between himself and God. And it starts from the place of hurting. In verses 1 to 4, there's a desperation about his questioning which he directs to God. He doesn't try to hide his struggle under a cloak of being respectable and decent with God. He says, this is what I'm struggling with. How can you expect me, Lord, to be a believer when this is the kind of thing that's going on? He's not being deliberately difficult. He's not trying to catch God out. This hurts. And he lets God have it. I'm just saying, surely the Lord is big enough to take on the chin the things that we feel. Is it not the case that our strongest relationships in life are with the folks that we can be ourselves with, the folks that we can be honest with? 
the folks that ask you on your way to the shops, how are you doing? And you say, fine. You don't know them very well. But perhaps when somebody close to you and a loved one says, how are you doing? You're, you're, you can be more honest. God wants to be close to us and with us. The gospel is about fellowship with God as and that's the promise of the ultimate hope of res- uh, in the gospel that we read in Revelation 21. And so, like Habakkuk, we, we should still be honest. He's, it's because the people of Israel are having a hard time. There's violence. They're in exile. And so, he, verses 1 to 4, just lets out and screams, not simply to um, vent his anger, but to look for a response. And then in verses 5 to 11, we have the Lord's answer, and and, and Habakkuk has listened. Sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that the only thing that really matters is their complaint. They just want to get it off their chest. They just want to say it. They just want to throw it out there, and, and that's it. They're not interested in whether there's a response. They're not interested in whether there's some kind of comeback that can justifiably be given. Um. Kudos to um, Kay Adams this week. She, uh, uh, so I didn't see the video clip, but she recorded a clip of herself having been um, three hours late on a sleeper train, the Caledonian sleeper. She recorded this bit venting at how she had to stay in her cabin, how she felt like a hostage, and so on and so on. And then she had the decency later to put up another message saying that she'd. There was more to it than just that. It wasn't just the fact that she was shouting out and then not listening. She had shouted out and then she thought again about it. But there's people that don't do that, isn't it? There's people who, for whom the most important thing is, I need, to, I need to shout and I complain and that's it. Once I've shouted and complained, that, that's the end of the matter and they're not ready to listen. But Habakkuk does and we should. And the Lord then gives a response, verses 5 to 11. But the problem in the response is God says, yes, there's a lot of evil going on. I'm not unaware of it, Habakkuk. I'm going to send in the Babylonians. And Habakkuk's left saying, wait a minute, that's worse. It's a bit like saying the, the, the government in Afghanistan was a bit weak and a bit corrupt. And the Lord says, that's all right, I'll get rid of them. Here's the Taliban. That's worse. <clears throat> and so Habakkuk, quite rightly, verses 12 to 17, into the beginning of chapter 2, comes back to God. He's forced to admit that the Lord's reply seems to contradict what Habakkuk had previously believed about God. But here's the thing. He's still giving God a chance. He still wants to tease this out a bit more. He still wants to wrestle with faith and life. Now, why is that? Because there are basic truths about the Lord that he's not ready yet to throw away. Are you not from everlasting? My God, verse 12, you're the Holy One. You'll never die. And so he tries to bring these, these truths about God into the discussion. I've always found it strange when people who seemed to be Christians, who seemed to be followers of Jesus, say that they cannot now believe because something's happened, because such and such took place. I'm I'm left wondering what they're saying about the basics that they once believed. 
Yes, it might be, for example, that a loved one has died, and that's serious, and that's sore, and, and we mustn't minimize that. But does it mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Does it mean that the tomb wasn't empty? Does it mean that Jesus' claims and promises about being the Son of God are not true? Does it mean that Jesus is not going to come again to judge the world and to bring in the new heavens and the new earth and to fulfill that vision we have in Revelation 21? I get it that things are hard. I get it that struggles are real. But if we were once sure about these faith basics, is it not the case that they still count? They're not suddenly proved untrue by our sore experience. And so what we are going through somehow takes place within and alongside all these things that we affirm about God. Now that's what Habakkuk's doing. There's his complaint. The Lord's reply, and it seems to be making it worse. And that second complaint where he brings in what he has previously believed about God. And then <clears throat> verses 2 to 20 of uh, chapter 2, the Lord replies again. And Habakkuk, without denying the reality of what he is struggling with, begins to relearn some key lessons about God. We all do relearning about not just God, but others as well, don't we? You, you knew that such and such a person was a kind person, and then something happens and, you, and they do something for you or something to you or something with you, and that reinforces the experience you've had of them being kind. It's not that you forgot that they were kind. It's not that you would have said so-and-so is no longer kind. But, but here's another example of it. Here's another instance of it. And, and so you're, you're encouraged and, and helped by it again. And, and once more, that lesson is, is learned and brought to the surface. Well, that's what's going on. Habakkuk relearns verse 3 of chapter 2 that God's timing is different from ours. He relearns that what counts most is a healthy relationship with the Lord and His people, verse 4 of chapter 2. Faithfulness is about integrity of relationship between ourselves and God. Faithfulness, Habakkuk realizes, involves clinging to God even when we could not understand God's actions, even when God's timing appears to be different. And so chapter 3 in the book is really a prayer response to this. It's a statement of faith that even though, verse 17, there are no grapes on the vine and so on, yet Habakkuk will rejoice in God. It's a recognition that there are winter times and seasons when things seem cold and hard and nothing is growing, but the reality is that in winter, quite a lot's happening, but under the ground. Now, I mentioned that the series that we're doing is, is following um, this book by Pete Gregg. And in each of the sessions, there's a, there's, sorry, there's a, a video series that, that accompanies this on the unanswered prayer course. And in each of the five sessions, there's a testimony from someone who's going through the situation that is being discussed. In this case, it's about still trusting God in the winter seasons of life. 
And it comes from a man, Bob Sorge, who is a minister and a worship leader. He'll tell us that just in this couple of minutes clip that we're going to watch. Now, Bob Sorge, as I say, was a minister and a worship leader, and then quite suddenly lost his voice some painful conditions. So how does a preacher preach with no voice? How does a worship leader? That's the thing. And in the clip, he's in the situation where he can speak for only one hour a day. It's too painful to to do more than that. And in the clip, his voice will be very quiet. So you you might not hear too clearly his his voice in this, but the words on the screen take us through the theme of, of what he's saying and what he's wrestling with. suffered an injury got to my voice at the time I was a pastor and a worship leader and uh, since that time my strength is very small and it's painful for me to speak so I I have about an hour a day that I can manage and then the pain shuts me down so you can all do the math. When this happened to me, it threw me into crisis in pretty much every department of my life. Threw me into professional crisis. What does a pastor do that can't talk? What does a worship leader do that can't sing? myself in a theological crisis. God, how can I be loving you, serving you, giving you my life, giving you my best, walking in obedience, walking in faith and love, pouring my life out for the gospel, and take a hit like this. I didn't have a theology for that. I found myself place in my life. Nobody had any answers, and all I had was this. For five years or so, my prayer life was basically three words. I love you. I don't understand you, but I love you. Over and over, just giving him my love in the darkest place in my life. I've discovered it's the most powerful thing you can do. No quick, no cheap answers for Bob Sorge or indeed for for Habakkuk. And yet both finish with that affirmation. There's more. There's a little interview with him after that clip on the uh, website. It's, it's, if you go to the Unanswered Prayer course and find session one, it's there. The barrenness that Habakkuk sees, verse 17, is the winter season in terms of kingdom growth. And it's not because God is not sovereign. The sovereign Lord, verse 19, is my strength. It is not the case that the difficult, the winter season, is a place of abandonment. 
Freedom and growth often occur in hidden and in mysterious ways beneath our understanding. Jesus spoke of the vine being pruned. And without the pruning, there is this wild growth which ultimately saps strength and overall health. But in pruning, the nutrients are redirected to remaining branches, ensuring that they become healthier. In the winter season, we learn that there is more to life than just what's on the surface. And the winter season should remind us that our spiritual lives, true, should aim for a transformation of our insides, our desires, our emotions, our aspirations, and not just our external behaviors. The winter season is not just a period of dormancy when nothing's happening. It's part of the survival mechanism, part of the housekeeping exercise, providing a time of replenishment. Habakkuk could appeal to the example of the crops and so on for his understanding of what was going on, and that was the affirmation he made in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 3. But for us today, there is not just the illustration and the insights from nature. We also have the witness and testimony of Jesus himself, that it's through death that resurrection comes. From Jesus, we learn that the last shall be first, that the one who wishes to hang on to everything in life will lose it, and much else that can only be true when we experience these unanswered times, these winter seasons. We have the empty tomb the presence of the risen Christ, the transformation of life that came through Jesus' followers, all screaming out to us that this faith is real and has sure foundations. And it's when we impose the false criteria of the world that we make most trouble for ourselves and make belief harder when we give in to society's lies about appearance being all that matters, or that tension is necessarily a bad thing, that effort is to be avoided, that pain is necessarily destructive, and yes, that death is a bad thing and only a bad thing, it is when we give in to these that we make ourselves ill-equipped not only for life here, but for eternal life in the kingdom of God. So maybe the silence from God is not so much that He has turned His back or that He is not there, but rather as a season for under the surface but very real growth without which future fruitfulness is impossible. It's a statement of faith. What Habakkuk says in these last few verses of chapter 3, what Bob Sorge was saying at the end of the clip about still affirming that he loves God even though he can't understand them. But faith then is not something that's unrealistic, not something that doesn't have foundation. It does in and through Christ are calling us to try and pull and hold these things together, to tease them out, to argue them out with the Lord, just as Habakkuk is giving us an example of. Otherwise, faith does not live in the real world. And whatever else and whatever our go else our gospel is, 
There has to be something that's in and of the real world.